And that whole notion of the flaneur was very much informed by the fact that I could ride my bike from where I lived in Pilsen. I could just like ride for an hour on one street and the entire city would transform. It's a gigantic grid. It's, you know, um, and so, yeah, pretty hard for me to pull up to think of a way that my work would be without the sort of experiences of those three cities. And I think that if it would have been, if I'd just chosen three different cities, it would be a totally different um, practice that I would have at this point, I think. The guests on today's episode are Tom Adair and Richard Blackwell. This is Tom's second time on the podcast and Richard's first. Tom is an artist based in Melbourne and is represented by Nanda Hobbs Gallery in Sydney. Richard is an artist based in Canberra and is represented by Flinders Lane Gallery in Melbourne. All three of us are exhibiting in an upcoming show, which is organised and curated by Tom. On the podcast, we sit down to talk about some of the themes in Richard and Tom's work and discuss the upcoming exhibition titled Spectrum. If you like this conversation, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, subscribe on YouTube, or follow me on Instagram at Recorded Time Podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. Sending this one out to my man Killer B. through um uni as yeah through printmaking both at the ANU and and in Chicago at the School of the Art Institute but I've been practicing as a kind of interdisciplinary artist you know for the best part of the last 10 years and you know I think of myself as a printmaker but less of a printmaker that explicitly uses traditional printmaking methods um and then outside of that I'm just sort of a maker or a technician so as we i just said i run um labs as a part of my day job and uh, i work a lot with robotics and and advanced manufacturing so probably in 2009 i started um i sort of made my first thing using a cnc mill and it's been a kind of sort of evolving process um both working within industry and and you know um in in facilitation of education and all of all of these different ways of sort of working with a CNC mill, and so my work is fundamentally printmaking um, of a sort, but it sort of intersects sculptural practice and architectural practice in a way. What was the type of first type of printing that you got introduced to? At oh, high look, school I or think most where- most printmakers start the same way. It's a sort of intaglio and and relief printing are the most sort of accessible kinds of a tra- traditional printmaking um, and those sort of big four. So etching, woodblock, screen printing and lithography um, as sort of what, what you get started with. And sort of my interest is probably in this, there's something simple about relief printing and the black lambs, as I call them, um, the sort of the works you'd be familiar with from Flinders Lane. Um, they started out the ambition, original ambition with those works was to make a woodblock print. 
So, but you know, that's sort of where it all started. Did you first start with dry point etching or with copper plate etching? Oh, Have I would say both? the first. Yeah, I mean, I've done it all. Like I, 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 um, I taught printmaking at various different sort of places around and, um, you know, do a lot, I do a lot of plate making now as well. I work for Patty Payne or with Patty Payne. We, we collaborate on, on her, the production of her plates. But, um, yeah, I guess if we go all the way back to high school, the first, the, the first print I made was probably by carving a piece of potato. Um, and then the next one would be a, a dry point into Perspex. Yeah. Nice. But, you know, you can keep going back to handprints in the sand, I guess. What is it? Lino cut? Yeah, lino, a bit of lino. I remember there was a flood at um, the ANU in 2000. I'd been on exchange in Chicago and there was a really big flood. It actually it sort of put a pause on my brother's PhD project at the time. He was also studying at the ANU, but it tore up the lino at the, um, at the art school and it just sort of, you know, soaked it all up, all the water. Uh, I don't know exactly how that works, but when we found it, it was just like the entire floor of the printmaking department had been pulled up. And uh, so that was sort of an endless supply of lino. So the works you do generally, what would you say that they're a representation of? Like what's the, I mean, I view them, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I view them as sort of semi-abstract in the sense that they're not representational, but at the same time they're a they're a motif or a stand-in for something from the real world. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so they're, I mean, sort of architectural or um, maybe architectonic, uh, the sort of of the sort of uh, inter, inter, interaction with architecture. So I think, you know, uh, initially they were literally drawings of the facades of buildings, just sort of simplified abstractions of the facades of buildings. At this point, they're almost more like the pathways that people travel through architecture. They're much more sort of simplified and and also they're more parametric. Um, now they're also more related to architecture in the sense that I'm using the tool set of the kind of contemporary architect. Um, I'm using the same sort of parametric design tools. Uh, and so they're trying to be a kind of cross-sectional uh, look at both the experience of and the discipline of the making of and the visual of architecture. So they're sort of, yeah, broad in general, but they all relate to the built environment. Um, how do you go about, so say if you're looking at a building and you decide that you're going to make that your subject, what's the process by which you compress that into your more, uh, simplified imagery? So Basically, there's a documentary process. So I tend to film uh, a lot of sort of transit. And and so like one of my sort of recurring images in my head is the vantage point of like riding through the city on a bicycle. Um, and I don't think I've actually, actually ever, ever sort of formally traced a photograph or a video of um, a building or a facade, but it's that height um you sort of you know say you're on a road bike and you're standing on the road bike and kind of coasting along down the street so you're at that height slightly higher than a car um and sort of you know moving in a kind of smooth and swift motion it's that kind of view of of the 
of buildings that I think is probably the simplest um, way of describing the view that I'm trying to capture. So I've named artworks after buildings. Um, I've named uh, or streets, intersections of streets, but it's never actually so specific as I'm there working from the sort of source imagery of a photo or anything. It's more drawings made after the fact. So I'll, you know, I'll experience it. Um, I'll go on a bike ride or, you know, I'll go on, I, I did a, I did my exchange and then my master's in Chicago. So um, Melbourne and Chicago were t- two really big influences. And so it was always trying to capture this sort of commute um, and then whether that be by bicycle or, or any kind of smooth trajectory, um, it's always really interesting to me. And then, yeah, and so, but it's, I'll then draw that from my memory. And what do you think they are a metaphor for or aside from just being abstract cityscapes, what are you trying to convey with your pictures or with your images? I think there's an extent to which, uh, especially when I first started doing this, I call, I just, I don't know what this series is called, but I refer to them as black lambs. Um, and actually the first one I ever made um, was named after Frank Stella and I can't remember the name of the actual body of work, um, unfortunately. But uh, there is, um, you know, the first one I saw in 2008, um, a beautiful exhibition of Frank Stella at uh, the Art Institute and of Chicago. And uh, that's sort of where it started. But that in that body of work, there are all these um, uh, shots of, uh, sort of, you know, vignettes or, or views of what I was kind of interpreting as Melbourne um, architectural landscapes. And they had, at first, there were simply illusions of 3D space. Um, and the architecture was architecture because I was this sort of 19 and, and I thought architecture was cool. I, I might want to study architecture. Um, now, I sort of... I think a lot about it and I've kind of grown as an artist continually kind of reapproaching this body of work. I kind of refer to it, even though they're sort of not formally paintings, I refer to it as my painting practice. And as it's evolved, I think the position of me as the viewer of that architectural landscape has become more important. And I had this sort of weird idea kind of scratching away um, that, you know, we sort of making our reality as we view it. Um, and that, uh, it's sort of, I guess it's somewhere between making sense and, and, and like literally forming our reality. Um, and so it's sort of an attempt to kind of like capture this really, really brief moment. Um, this sort of like upwards glance at architecture, um, as you commute through it, they're almost um, like a, they're almost they're almost like an amalgamation of ten or fifteen buildings, aren't they? That you know that you'd see yeah, on your on yeah. your way between uni and work or yeah. whatever. But are they also meant as sort of a um, almost like a? Is there a parallel between the madness of the twenty first century psyche and sort of the madness of these inescapable? worlds that you create because I get the sense looking at your work that it's almost like especially with the the cutout 
around um, a lot of your work, you get the sense that we're almost on an island of sorts mm-hmm. um, in in the world that you're depicting, and it's sort of got this uh, inescapable um, madness to it, and it's almost made a bit more sinister by the palette a lot of the time as well, because often monochromatic and often quite black. So, would you agree with that comparison? Yeah, I I, I do. I think that what you're deriving from it is sort of not necessarily where I started with it, but that's why I'm not writing, you know, a book for you to read. Um, I'm, and I'm, I really, I respond positively, positively to that um, interpretation. And I think Labyrinth really got to that point where by the, you know, a sort of the production of Labyrinth happening in whatever March of la- last year, um, you know, wouldn't want to tell Claire how close to the, exhibition those works were made but the uh um the labyrinth those works became like sort of these deep and dark mazes and they mm. became these sort of more um psychological spaces for me and um they seemed they, they seemed very sinister to me yeah yeah exactly and so th- i'm really kind of i respond well to that characterization um and there is generally speaking a kind of um, cautious detachment uh, from, I would not call too much of the work um, particularly optimistic. I would say sometimes it's neutral um, and and there is a kind of sublime that I'm also trying to capture in those works that I think is not so much happy um, or optimistic, but is not also, it's not necessarily dark um, either. Um, but yeah, certainly it goes in that direction. And almost an extension of that uh, inescapable reality is the unstoppable march of technology. And from looking at your work, you're very aware of these almost uh, patterns and processes and algorithms that generate the image almost organically. And I, I get the sense that that's almost a stand in for uh, perpetual innovation and the unstoppable march of technology is that is that is there anything to that do you think or is that more again something that's just totally yeah no that's there and the i mean so i'm really interested in the relationship to between craft and systems and yes these are sort of systems of making that i'm putting in place um and they're in a sense to reflect on uh on that um and i think that you know i'm a i'm i'm sort of my work uses technology, utilizes kind of contemporary fabrication technology. Um, it and I sort of um, I'm a very sort of technology forward person in that sense. And yeah, I think ultimately, you know, my my work's pretty broad. I do I have a kind of practice that is this sort of painting practice of of kind of these abstract these abstractions that I think you're very familiar with and and then these other arms of my practice but generally speaking I'm kind of coming to terms um myself with the idea that that uh that my work essentially tracks the inevitable kind of rise of technology do you feel a certain sense of optimism with that rise of technology or um yeah do you look at the future quite bleakly or optimistically I mean, I'm a happy person. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an optimistic person, but um, I don't think we can be too optimistic looking at the uh, the things, the affect of technology in the last 
few years. Um, but I would say my position as an artist is possibly attempting to be more of an observer than a commenter. Um, and and does the and does the use yeah. of machines almost reinforce that objectivity as well? It's almost like you're there's a there's a sense that you're quite uh, objective and detached from the subject that you're depicting, and I assume the use of machines um, as opposed to you know the touch of the artist uh, reinforces that. Yeah, I think you know I definitely think that I'm sort of always passing my hand through these sort of technical systems and I'm trying to, uh, you know, trying to inject um, the kind of the character I'm building in the work through different approaches, some of which are sort of more direct manipulation, some of which are the, the writing of code that, that, you know, produces. I sort of I want to use them all as tools and a kind of affect of that is pointing them out. Mm. And uh, yeah, and it's a kind of, especially as I don't, I don't know. It's almost it's it's happening. If anything, I kind of have been this sort of overbearingly techno forward artist for my practice, and now everyone is living through a technological lens. Mm. Um, and so I don't know. I don't. It's kind of like with QR codes. Now we're all, um, you know we're all using QR codes left, right, and center. Mm. And I'm just like, fucking finally, you know, we've been, they've been around forever. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, it's actually, there's, it's, you know, and it's, it feels just like um, more in touch with reality, if anything, um, than less. But the, the use of machines to sort of be an observer rather than, I don't know, convey a more opinionated uh, vision it's almost like the difference between uh, a drawing from life of someone and then a photo of someone. And then like, you know, the photo mm. is much more objective and it captures reality um, much more objectively. So I guess it's sort of the, the use of machines. Yeah. It generates mm. an objectivity. Um, talking about the uh, sort of how we're all living in a simulated world and, you know, everything's, um, you know, getting more and more artificial, your work simulates depth quite um Obviously, and I've said this of um, Tom's work before, but the illusion of depth in your work seems like a very transparent illusion, almost like you want the viewer to be aware that it's simulated. Is that in some sense a nod to the artificial nature of the 21st century and the idea that everything, all what was previously three-dimensional in our lives is now just crunched into a two-dimensional screen? Yeah, I, like I would, I would say that if... That's definitely a, a factor. Um, sorry to be non-committal to exactly uh, what this play is about because I think it's sort of a lot of things. It, it kind of goes back to the sort of conversations that you have a lot in um, printmaking circles about figure and ground relationships because we've got the the sort of matrix or the you know the the print the the plate of sort of any any kind of print medium. And then you're sort of carving or, or removing or adding material and you end up having this kind of figure and ground, the sort of foreground and background. Um, and sort of to shorten that long story, it it's sort of, it's a graphic quality. I want the work to 
enforce its two dimensionality and its graphic nature as as much as it um, enforces some kind of uh, three dimensional illusion. And for me, it works the most satisfyingly when it is neither one; it's both. Yeah, both right. at once. Because I got that sense. I got that sense in Labyrinth in particular in that series of works is just like the folds of a lot of the works like Lost and Mask had those. Um, I mean, just looking at them from say 10 metres away, you'd really think that they were very three-dimensional sculpture. But when you get up close, of course, it's just the 2D plywood. So to what extent are your works generated by machines and uh, to what extent do you let the processes of algorithms and machines construct the work and sort of, run wild so i would say i mean almost every work that i make has some kind of uh, digital fabrication aspect to it um and when i say i draw quite often i'm talking about some kind of digital interface to drawing um like you know uh so everything that i do is sort of passed by some kind of digital technology um to give you an example, it's always kind of a mixture. So two recent works, um, I'm drawing a camera lens um, from pictures from the internet, um, just, you know, photos of that camera lens on sale, um, various um, different cutaways and sections that have been made of this sort of popular um, Leica lens. Is this uh, a work for, is this a work for Spectrum? Yeah, it's a work from the upcoming show, yes. And it kind of looks like a um, blueprint almost of the design of a camera yeah, lens. Yeah, exactly. And so that process is one of, of drawing in CAD um, and, you know, literally drawing sections and 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 and, and trying to sort of faithfully recreate um, the camera lens from, you know, kind of evidence that I can pull from the internet. And then the next step of that is to use 3D rendering um to sort of create this kind of still life image of uh, the lens. And so I'm using a kind of rendering environment, key shot, um, using the tools of product photography or product um, development, you know, the kind of renderings that you would see an iPhone ad or, or whatever. Um, and then I kind of create a negative from that and make it a cyanotype. And the cyanotype process is like... What is a cyanotype? Um, so a cyanotype, you mentioned a, a blueprint, um, a cyanotype and a blueprint synonymous. A cyanotype is it's like a 200-year-old contact printing method that uses um, a, a sensitizer. Um, I can't pull up exactly what that sensitizer is made from, but it's it's sometimes called Prussian blue. Um, and you expose it to the sun, um, the sensitizer dries, and then you can wash the rest of the way. And it's, it's how uh, drawings were originally duplicated as blueprints um and that's why a blueprint is the the color palette that it is um the drawing was you know black pencil on white paper white film and then it was exposed in the sun and inverted um and so that process though of making that cyanotype paper and sensitizing the paper is a totally manual process of like a painterly process um much the same for the the I'll just talk through the works from Labyrinth. So the um, the drawing is a sort of you know a collection of of marks made by my hand um, that then gets ran through as essentially a script that I've written um, uh, and sort of pulled into into three D. 
that then gets flattened out and engraved on a C- using a CNC router. Um, and then I take that and depending on exactly kind of what process I'm using, I'll uh, rub ink into the surface. Um, I'll run, uh, I rub various kind of water-based um, uh, seals to the surface like cabothane um, and then and go back and forth between the router. So like it's a kind of predominantly um, uh, computerized approach that sort of, I'm trying to strategically invest handmade, hand sort of driven processes into it. Yeah. It's kind of interesting how dependent our artistic styles are on the technology of our age. Like imagine if you'd been born 500 years ago or 500 years in the future, what kind of different work you'd be making. And same goes for you as well Mm. with the kind of stuff you do, Tom. Do Do you think of, do you see technology as sort of like a, a natural progression in our evolution? Do you think it's kind of something that, I mean, like do you see cities as a natural thing or an unnatural thing? Oh, I mean, if you look at, if you look at cities um, and you take a kind of broad view of it, like you look at a whole city out of a plane, for example, um, you can totally see some small amount of the kind of overriding culture of that place in the city itself. Like you can see it in Chicago. You, you can see some of the character of Chicago by looking down at it from above. You can see it in Doha, another city that I've lived in. You can see it in Sydney. Yeah. And and in a lot of architectural kind of environments, they start to look a little bit like hives. Um, you, you kind of go far enough back and you start to see, yeah, hives and nests. So I think cities are pretty organically part of the human condition or a a human condition, and they're certainly influenced by capitalism. Um, But, and I think technology is a force or a path that we're on. I mean, so just to go back a little bit, you know, I don't think that there's a a necessarily an an inevitable connection between art practitioners and technology. But I would say that the disciplinary role of a printmaker is, is, is one of a kind of a person engaged with technology. Um, You know, I think that we sort of summarize that and simplify that as, as a person engaged in the production of multiples or in the making of prints. But I think that, for me at least being a printmaker and the reason why I sort of, I mean, I started making prints and then kind of continued to think of myself as a printmaker is because I'm interested in that, in that, that kind of conversation or that augmentation of technology. And so, you know, to that question, if it was 500 years ago, I probably would have been making lithographs. Um, And if it's 500 years in the future, I'd probably be making virtual reality things mm. and if it's Probably right sooner now, rather than later I think with robots yeah yeah um I know you're also interested in uh, the idea of uh Walter Benjamin's uh flaneur or the idea of you know what a uh, flaneur is just for the listeners would you be able to explain what uh the flaneur is uh, or a flaneur is uh and sort of how that relates to your approach to uh, documentation of your surroundings and of your artwork. Okay, so what I'll do is I'll give you the explanation as I know it. I think everyone listening to this podcast who's been through the same kind of art history um, mm-hmm. kind of uh, 
required coursework that I have been through is going to say no, um, but that's okay. I, for me, a flaneur is, is mostly somebody who goes on a derive, and a derive is a walk through the urban environment without intention. Basically, so, so set, what so I was talking of, about. So a sense of detachment, but still an observer. And a sense of attachment, a detachment, or better yet, an observer of of the city. And I guess it probably doesn't necessarily relate relate to just the city, but for me, it's an observer of the city who is going out mostly to observe the city or to let the city drive the sort of direction that they take. I guess. Mm. I guess you're a bit of a flaneur then as well, Tom. Every now and then. Yeah. Uh, You like to walk around the city, Tom? Not just the city exclusively. Don't mind a little bit of nature. Early mornings, late nights. Especially at 4 a.m. round club. Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah. No idea how you do that, to be honest. Why does it have to be at 4 a.m. for the round club? It's a filter. It's a filter? Yeah. For what? Oh, for the people who... Turn up. Well, yeah, but then... It makes it harder. Got to be in it to win it. Makes it harder. The the reward <laughs> is greater. Yeah, but you'd get more people involved, wouldn't you, if it was at 5.30? Yeah, but we, we don't That's the point, people. Julius. That's the point. Psychopaths, Richard. Um, yeah, I'm not doing it. Yeah. I would if it was at a reasonable hour, but um, your landscapes, Richard, could almost be um, described as Escher-esque. Um, I'm thinking of sort of, you know, his Penrose stairs and the... Uh, again, to what we were saying before about the inescapability of the semi-abstract cityscapes that you're depicting, and you almost feel trapped in them. Has Escher is Escher an influence on your work, or and would you agree with that comparison at all? I love you asked you you mentioned this, and I um, I had a lot of fun thinking about the Escher connection because, in some ways, I think, well, I mean, for starters. That's the beauty of the image. It can it can be a, an illusion of a space, but it can also defy that illusion and and create you know other possible sort of illusions within. And yeah, I definitely big Escher fan. I I will admit that I was possibly more like the age of you know between ten and fifteen when I was an Escher fan. Um, but you actually took me back because. I took this tech course um, in high school and uh, the teacher taught us perspectival drawing, uh, like one-point perspective drawing and two-point perspective drawings, and I just became obsessed with drawing and, like, making up cities. That's, uh, probably, drew... that's probably the most exciting part about yeah. learning how to draw is, uh, you know, learning about perspective and just immediately how you can create a sense of depth. And yeah. Oh, yeah, for some. For mm. some, for sure. It's really mm. exciting. And... You know, I had forgotten about that, but um, yeah, I was. I spent ages drawing cities, kind of. They were sort of almost. E- you remember E Boy? E Boy? Mm, what the pixel what's that? art? Um, just this like, really cool pixel mm. art. You know, super detailed cities. <laughs> that um, HBO show Silicon Valley. You know the. Uh, Haven't seen the, it. Have you seen? Yeah, doesn't matter. Anyways. I will though. Um, I, I I almost view your works as like. I mean, if you view Escher as a typical flaneur and an observer of his environment, uh, because they're still quite uh, representational works, I almost view yours as the exact same part of the same world, but just uh, one 
level further abstracted than his, if that makes sense. I almost see your works as semi-abstract depictions of uh, not the same subject matter as Escher, but the same uh, mentality and approach to, you know, the urban and architectural environment. Yeah, yeah. And I would, I sort of, I think there's also a kind of, we share an interest in systems as well mm. um, because there's sort of these antecillations. Um and yeah, a ton of my work is is sort of playing with these tessellated tiles in a way that is kind of you know baby stuff compared to a uh, old MC Escher. But the the yeah, I can sort of see that connection too. Um, and yeah, the surfaces of the work are sort of you know they're kind of built either in the in the in the panels they're built of lines essentially, but the lines are kind of um, creating tone on the surface so there's a sort of relationship to print separations um and how how the kind of the image when you look sort of as you zoom in and it becomes this kind of um yeah this there's this half turn effect to it i'm thinking about tom's work right now or i was just about to make uh, that comparison i was just about to make that comparison Um, because you've got the in the work again from labyrinth for example you've got the cut-ins on the plywood and it makes the work Say if you're standing at it from the side and then you move around to the middle and then around to the right, the image almost uh, shimmers and changes. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I was just about to, it's funny you said that about Tom's work because I was thinking that there's a close comparison between that and the way Tom's dotted airbrush technique changes as you move around it and how, as I've said of your work before, Tom, it kind of uh, you orchestrate the audience's engagement with your work. If, it, if they stand over here, it looks one way. If they stand over there, it looks another way. Um, so, yeah. Sorry, go on. Yeah, so the surfaces are kind of, they're lines. I think they're tonal planes. Um, I try and also elicit the sense of a kind of plane in 3D space, like a three-dimensional plane. Um, and so, yeah, sort of I try and appreciate their qualities as like a two-dimensional image and a three-dimensional surface at the same time. Um and I suppose they're coded in. I, I'm trying to. I'm trying to pull that back to to Escher, but all I keep thinking of is like a bunny rabbit, or yeah. a, you know, a, a, I'm I'm getting those tessellating tiles. That's yeah. all I can think of right now. But yeah. are your works inspired by a specific type of architecture? Like, is there? Do you have a favorite architect? And is your work? Oh, so I'm way? a Canberra boy. I grew up in um, Canberra, and so I, I'm a bit of a brutalism fan. You know. Um, so the yeah the Belco kind of um, the the James Cameron um, the really great Australian no sorry not James Cameron John Andrews I was going to say James Cameron uh, really, is the director isn't he? He's the director of the Titanic. Right. Yeah. Was right. John Andrews <laughs> was John Andrews the one that did that um, that science building? I think it was a science building with like the bubbles and the brutalist yep. form on it. Yeah, and you know RMIT the bank. The Combank below RMIT. I don't know if it's a Combank still, but there's there's actually a John Andrews building at the bottom of RMIT on Swanson Street. They've kind of built on top of it over the years. Um, and some really famous um, brutalist buildings in Canberra. Um, yeah, and just generally speaking, I guess that... So there's sort of three main architectural sources. It would be the brutalism of Canberra, um, the modernism of Chicago, um, and then finally, I sort of 
really responded to the Mesherabia um, in the kind of for this for the three years I spent living in the Middle East. So the kind of faceted uh, or perforated facades of um, traditional and contemporary um, architectural forms in in that part of the Middle East. How much how much does your work change if you're surrounded by different architecture? Do you think? Like, would um, you be? Would you have made if you'd been living, just say, in London instead of Canberra when you were making your labyrinth series? Would the works have looked different? So yeah, it's the cumulative effect for sure. Um, and so, if if I'd replaced those three cities or, or you know three places with different sites, I'm sure the work would be very different. I think that Chicago in that sense had a really big effect on me. I I actually, so I visited Chicago as a 19 year old on exchange during university. And then again, um, for an exhibition just prior to starting my master's and then for three years for my master's and, and, and working in Chicago. And so, and it was probably not just the kind of architectural facades of the buildings in Chicago, but the the kind of connection between the sort of planned city of Chicago and Canberra um, designed by um, Walter Griffin in 1912 and 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 very much a disciple of the Chicago school and that whole notion of the flaneur was very much informed by the fact that I could ride my bike from where I lived in Pilsen I could just like ride for an hour on one street and the entire city would transform it's a gigantic grid it's, you know, um, and so, yeah, it's pretty hard for me to pull up, to think of a way that my work would be without the sort of experiences of those three cities. And I think that if it would have been, if I'd just chosen three different cities, it would be a totally different um, practice that I would have at this point, I think. You went yeah. to Chicago on a Fulbright scholarship, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what, the second time I went, yeah. So what's the art scene like in Chicago? Um, the art scene in Chicago is awesome. Um, so the best way to put it is that the food in Chicago is awesome for the same reason. And the food in Chicago is awesome because people can afford to rent spaces and start restaurants. Um, whereas if you go to New York, it's not the same. Like you can't do that. It's kind of like how New York was in the eighties. I guess. I don't when know it, when it was a cheap um, when it was a cheaper place to live in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, and so I think I think that it's a super accessible place. It's got a really really strong focus on a few big institutions um, uh, and the Art Institute and the School of the Art Institute, which is you know where I studied and worked, is one of them. Um, it's an awesome place uh, for art. And the communities around, like the kind of community around the art school there is pretty, pretty amazing. Um, and I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot more to come out of art, visual arts in, in Chicago in the coming years too. Who are some of your favourite artists, living or dead, in any medium or genre? <sighs> I know about this question. Broad question. Um, I can't go past the fact that I have a tattoo of a Frank Stella painting on my arm. Mm. Um, and just to be sure, I Googled it. It is the painting is called Averos, Averos. from 1960. Um, and that's, that's real commitment. Yeah, that is an indication that you love him. <laughs> yeah. Big fan. Well, it wasn't this. Pa- I'm putting the painting in the chat just so you can see it. 
Um, it wasn't. Who would you get tattooed, Sorry. Tom, if you were gonna? Oh. Maybe a full back piece of a Howard Arkley. Yeah, <laughs> not bad. Get the Nick Cave one that done on your be, back. That would be sick. Uh, yeah. So I mean, definitely. I don't know. I think I owe a lot of my childhood um, art obsession to Frank Stella. And there's a couple of big, like I was always really into seeing Frank Stella's in corporate environments. Um, and I think that sort of really, and there's a couple of really good ones in Sydney. Did you send, um, did you send it through to the group chat, the image of the Frank Stella? Yeah. Yep. Let's have a look. Yep. Stop texting your wife, Tom. Pay attention. Oh, sorry. I just sent it to you, um, Julius. Oh, me? Yep. I wonder if I can roll my sleeve up high enough so you can see the tattoo. Oh, Surely I can, I've shown you before. I can see the influence for sure. Yeah, yeah. It almost looks no, like a, um, like an ancient artifact or something, mm. like something you might you discover in ancient Egypt. It's all, but also a little bit sci-fi. Oh, that's sick. Yeah, I can see that. It's also got a bit of sci-fi about it though as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so we had. Um, it was like the, the inside it. the inside pattern on a um, on a spaceship or something. I like it. So the, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of offset. It's a series, it's a large, it's from a large series of paintings. Um, and you can see that it's a sort of shaped panel and the lines are actually the, 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 the lines painted are, are painted in a kind of metallic or gold paint, depending on the painting. And the lines that you see are the sort of space between the, the different strips of the paint. Um, but just that sort of formal practice of the shape, shaping a canvas and then sort of setting a, um, setting a kind of system um, of, of sort of completing the painting was really fascinating to me. And, yeah, so I, I sort of decided I wanted to get, if I found an, a tattoo artist that could do really good straight lines. And so I'd had it in my head that I wanted to get a Frank Stella tattoo for ages. Um, and there's so many, like, it's more about the body of work than one of the individual paintings. Um, and so it was just a matter of working out what painting it was. And two years ago, I went back for a summer in the States and I went traveling um, with my friend, friends and collaborators, Kate Conlon and Boyang Ho. And we were in um, Connecticut and visiting the architect, Philip Johnson's um, glass house really sort of seminal piece of modernist architecture and philip johnson was like a bit of a baller and you know spent most of his life um building out this like crazy estate with many different little sort of architectural pavilions on it and one of them is this cave that houses his collection of paintings and i lined up to go to mumbai and get the tattoo I was going to Mumbai anyways. I didn't go just for the tattoo, but, uh, and I needed to choose what Frank Stiller I was going to have. And then just at the end of this epic road trip, we were standing in the cave and the doors to the cave with all this painting collection, just like open slowly. And that painting Avaros is sitting like right at the back. Um, just like perfectly centered. Put out to you first. And I was like, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So you yeah. could say almost your choice made to what you were just saying, just a minute ago, you could almost say your your style is almost determined by the amount of rules you put in place uh, through the use of technology um, before you let the work almost create itself. 
<laughs> you set, you set the parameters by using a specific algorithm, uh, or yeah, certain certain different technological devices um, that you put in a set of rules and let the work almost make itself based on on those rules, and that's that's almost yeah. It's mix. sort of it's the work is a like there's a certain element to which there's a gesture um, that's a kind of direct input from me. Um, not always, but sometimes. And then there are these systems that I've also developed that I'm putting into play. And sometimes I just think of it more like there's a sort of instinctive application of those things. Like I do really think mostly about my work in sort of formal terms. And and a lot of the time for me, the outcome, what's important about the outcome is the actual sort of experience of the work in the space. Uh, and I, I do really like to think of the work in simple terms and I'm very happy for it to be consumed in that way, just viewed as it is. But yes, what it is, is a kind of interplay of, a, of like a number of established systems, some of which are sort of building as a form of practice, some of which are kind of um, develop in a sort of shorter term one-off way. Um, and like every every artist has the sort of systems of their practice. If you're a painter, you stretch canvas or whatever you do, mm. uh, as well as, you know, you mix paints in a certain way. But, yeah, the, the sort of my systems tend to be kind of hard-coded and digital. Um, and so, yeah, I would, I would say it's a, it's a probably a, the way I'm thinking about it is less eloquent than the way that you're talking about it. But that's why I'm mostly making it and not talking about it. I do, I do like to talk about it there. But, but that's an interesting point, though, because... Even, I mean, even drawing on paper, the creation of paper is a technological development in itself. That's sort of, say, yep. one part removed from early cave paintings. So nothing yep. is, there's not really any art that's kind of separated from uh, an interaction with technology these days. And even, I guess, the use of... Um, or even those days. These days, all those days. Yeah. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. But it's it's even like... Even the use of borders is immediately sort of putting in parameters and rules uh, around a work. Mm. Tom. Exactly. Sorry, I shouldn't nod on a podcast. but nah, That's all yeah. good. Tom. Julius. What have you been up to in the studio lately? <sighs> a lot going on, man. Where do we start? Mm. Um, I've been doing a lot of, I don't even know where to start. I've been doing a lot of work myself, I think, this year. Um, probably less so through painting and more so through um, research, reading, meditation. Um, what have you been reading? Been reading all sorts of things. Um, art history books, books specific about artists, um, different practices, and just really immersing myself in the way that some of my favorite artists or artists that I'm referencing at the moment used to live and how they used to work and how they used to show their work, mm. collaborate. Because um, your work's in a bit of a transitionary stage at the moment, isn't it? You want to sort of, I mean, the way you, you're one of the more prolific artists that I know. I mean, like you can bang out a, a massive painting in, what, three or four days. Um, and so I get the sense that, correct me if I'm wrong, but you feel like you've, made enough work on uh, one subject that you're sort of itching to try out new things? I think I want to bring more depth into my work. I think it's something I've been really craving. Um, and and I think retrospectively, some of my previous work, you can, you can definitely apply 
concepts and meaning to, but in terms of like having a, a unique voice as an artist and talking about things that are interesting to me, um, the new stuff is definitely going to try and incorporate that a little bit more heavily. Do you mean compositional depth? Because I'd like a lot of your works are... Conceptual depth. Conceptual depth. Yeah. Right. I thought you were more meaning in the sense that like the buildings that you do in a lot of your works uh, frame the picture in a way that you've only got a foreground. You haven't got a, a vast landscape, except in a few of the um, sort of cactus mm-hmm. uh, images you did. But you mean more in terms of... Conceptually. Uh, and what kind of well, what kind of concepts are you moving towards? Um, would you rather not talk about it until you've done it? Uh, it it's, I'm not... It's just all very loose at the moment. It's a lot of experimentation that I feel I'm definitely going through a transition, um, whether or not it takes and I do a full show or um, it, I save it for a little bit longer and continue doing some of the stuff that I'm currently doing just with a, a different angle or time will tell. Um, but the new stuff sort of, I, st- I wanted to incorporate when I was looking for what my unique voice was, I wanted to incorporate exercise or sport and the the benefits of that to my practice and talk about that through the work. And that sort of became an entry point to um, I guess what my vulnerabilities were in terms of why I, I wanted to talk about art and personally what my vulnerability was in everyday life. And I think that opened up the, the um the avenue of appearance which is a, a, an ongoing theme throughout my mm. career professionally so i've worked in fashion which is all about appearance it's nothing but appearance really um and then i've worked in interiors which is appearance of the the home and sort of architecture that starts talking about or you can look at it from the, the point of view of the house that you have or the cars that you have and that sort sort of lifestyle and the appearance that people perceive. So so a through line through your work is the juxtaposition between reality and perceived realities. Yeah. And so that that sort of um, vulnerability morphed into um, I guess social media and digital culture with um, the way that people are trying to um, like their appearance through social media and they're trying to attain um, happiness that they can't really get and it's it's all there's, a, there's appearances that are influencing that thing that they're trying to chase that they can't particularly get. Mm. And it's almost like the the degree to which someone forges um, people's perception of them uh, becomes a work itself. It's yeah. almost, we were talking about, um, we went to the NGV about, what, two months ago now? Yeah. Yeah, we went to the NGV about two months ago, Richard, and I can't remember, oh, I should know the artist's name, but at the triennial, did you see the triennial at all, Richard? Yeah, yeah, to do that. Do you know who the artist was who did that um, massive projected uh, video work of- right na- in the front. Of Narcissus? Uh, oh, there was like it's almost there's there's a the figure of narcissus looking into the water and then in the backdrop there's like twenty or Angela Tiatira, Angela Tiatira, Tiatira, Tiatira. Yeah, I'm not sure on the pronunciation of that one, but I think that's that's her name. Because we would we were talking when we saw that 
that the idea of narcissist would be such a good subject for you because that's all about uh, not just uh, an obsession with one's own beauty or perceived beauty, um, but the destructive nature of that. Yeah. Uh, that, that was that definitely launched me further into um, where I've started investigating and sort of researching. Um, it's probably not so much narcissism anymore. It, may, it might also be about um, seeking approval um, and what people do to seek approval because there's this weird, weird transition that we're making on social media where people do things in reality to make them cells look a certain way for their curated feed so other people approve them so then they can approve themselves. And they almost prioritise their cyber identity over their real identity. Yeah, and I, I really am fascinated by the online identity that people hold and then the reality. It's such a, I don't know, there's like this weird space in between, but I don't, it's just it's fascinating. Have you got any works on the way? around this idea yet? Uh, the piece for uh, Spectrum, the group show is all about that. All right, well, that's a good lead into um, the exhibition. Then what is Spectrum and uh, what is Thoughts Form, which is the uh, sort of mobile gallery space that uh, we'll be using to exhibit at Spectrum? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm moving studio, uh, moving out of the Cremorne space into a, uh, slightly larger space in Richmond. Um, not by choice. That place is getting demoed, and I've been up for up for a new lease probably for the last six months. So it's time to make the transition. And the new place has a. It's split into two rooms, and one of the rooms is basically an underground concrete bunker. It's a basement floor that I've taken as a, a studio lease, and it, the second room where the studio is opens up onto a back laneway with some natural light. But thought forms is basically nothing at the moment. It's just a, an idea and it's not a commercial gallery. It's not a formal gallery. It's not a gallery that's going to show or represent artists specifically. It's just a place that is an extension to my studio. I've always wanted to have a, a working studio and then be able to take those pieces that I create and then put them into a, a gallery space to actually feel what they they look like and, you know? and why is that did you just want a space where you could exhibit you and your friends work independent of uh sort of a commercial environment and commercial work uh it's pro it's less so for me to exhibit work um i've always wanted to have a group show at my current Cremont studio that's something i've wanted to do the whole time i've been there i've just been too busy or not motivated enough motivated enough to do it and this move presented an opportunity to clear the whole space out and have a big white empty warehouse and do that so um i basically yeah i just wanted to that was the start of it and then thought forms is just the, sp the space and i've just named it that for um i don't know we'll, we'll see what happens it, it could be it could be a very experimental space so it's no commercial sales value it could just be for um shows that are for the greater good could be experimental for artists that haven't shown before it could it's be almost anything. it's almost like a mini arts festival it's kind of the yeah vibe it's I'm just from. it's just it's not really anything at the moment but i feel like artists sometimes want to have a 
show before the show. Like I, I want like to have a space ground. or a, a testing ground, a place where I can like make work and essentially hold a crit, um, mm. essentially have a, like a, a hang with a little bit less of a kind of exhibition, um, a, a curatorial process. Um, maybe it's a hang for other artists. Maybe it's, it's a hang just for, um, your local community or a larger community, but it's kind of the proto show. It's, it's a, it's, it's a little bit about user feedback. It's less formal, I guess. It's is. a very, it's, it's mm. definitely less formal. It's very casual. I don't know. Spectrum's looking pretty slick. Yeah. Spectrum's going to be off the charts. Uh, I reckon <laughs> it's going to be really, but yeah, that, that, you could, you could run a, that's uh, what I want thoughts bombs to be. You could run a, yeah, you could run a gallery quite well. By yourself, I reckon, Tom. Honestly, the, uh, running a gallery admin. is the last thing I want to do. Yeah. Too I just, much I just want to. I, too it, much is, work. it is way too much work. I just want to have a space that friends can come. We can put on a show every three months, and it's not. There's no pressure to sell anything. It's just a really cool show with a really cool through line, or for a good cause. Like maybe there's shows for charities. Uh, I don't know. It could just be whatever. It's really casual. And is it spectrum and light? Have you chosen those? Have you chosen that as the main theme? Because it's almost, I mean, it's broad enough in the sense that light applies to all artworks. I mean, just the act of seeing is sort of entangled with the function of light, but one can also deal with it uh, very specifically as subject matter. Yeah, that was the reason for for going with um, the light theme. It was just such a broad and varied style and background of work from all the artists and creatives that are involved in the show that I just wanted something that would stitch them all together. And I had um, Mark Chu, one of the artists who's involved in the show in my studio for a residency for a week. And uh, we were just back and forth about what the show would be like. And um, he actually suggested light as a theme. And then mm. I sort of riffed on that a little bit with spectrum and um, it just all clicked into place really quickly. Mm. Because, yeah, it applies to all artists' work, but you can leave it up to them as to how specifically they deal with the subject. Where did you get the name Thought Forms from? Uh, thought Forms. Thought Forms. Um, it's got a few meanings for me. I've been thinking a lot lately with uh, the meditation I've been doing about consciousness and um, I think I've, I've heard a few people talking about how we actually don't know what's going to come out of our mouth while we're actually speaking. And I think that's a really fascinating thing that our conscious knows before we actually speak it. Podcast is a good case study of that. Yeah. Uh And so that in itself, I find fascinating. Um, And then I I was reading a book called Spray, which is a um, Howard Arkley book. I can't remember when it was produced, maybe the 2000s. And... um, I was reading about his third show at Tolano, which was called Thought Forms. That was his third series. And I think that was the one that sort of really set him off on a pretty, pretty big direction. And I looked into what it was all about. And there's a book by a, a um, philosopher called Charles Ledbetter. And it's about um, how thought manifests itself in your mind and then is expressed through form. And I, I really like that, um, that idea a, that thought, th- thoughts are a thing in themselves. 
Yeah. They exist almost independently of us. Yeah, they become a being once you think of it. Mm. It it exists. And I really like that idea that you can think of something as an artist and then just through through any means, through through technology um, or through painting or sculpture or however, mm. um, it can become a, a physical piece of art. And that's interesting because it's, I mean, you'd think every every thought that enters your head is the product of, you know, what you ate this morning, what you've been reading, who mm. you know in your life. You're a product of every experience you've had in your whole life. But then how have we gone from, you know, 100,000 years ago when humans first, you know, walked the earth to all this stuff that we have around us? Like, They're all thoughts that have just been evolving. Generated and generated. Mm. And it's almost, and that goes almost to your work, Richard, with the, you know, the iteration of certain patterns that just end up, this sort of endless I was gonna say, perpetual creativity. Thought forms thought forms sounds like artwork to me. I kind of oh. I could imagine growing up in a world where you just the word thought form meant artwork. And so it's really nice that name in that way. And it's a great name They're for all, great name for an art show or an art space. Sorry, go on, Richard. No, that's it. I just yeah. I really like it. It's quite simple. Um I think we do conceive of Artworks mostly, you know, in this kind of basic way as ideas, and and then we kind of use this disciplinary practice to um, express them in to... various ways. Yeah. yeah, and so I don't know. It, it just locks with me with even just the sort of cadence of thought forms versus artworks. Um, mm. There's something kind of nice about the structure of the words too. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of artworks. Yeah, but we just take the word artwork for granted. That's maybe why thought exactly forms sound so different. Uh, I'll ask this question to both of you and it's um, uh, pretty broad, I guess, but what do you think motivates creatives to create? Richard, you first. Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I, went, I went first on all the other questions. Why oh, fair enough. Go first? Good point, good point. Tom? Uh, what motivates them? Personally, I... I, I can only speak from a personal point of view. Um, I think, I don't know, you wake up in the morning and there's just something there that is in the back of your mind that you have to, to go and make these things to to realise and to learn, to observe, to start discussions about important things. Mm. Um, I think... I don't know. That's what creativity is to me. But how depressing would your life be, do you think, if you had to stop creating all of a sudden? Uh, well, I've come from that place where I couldn't create from a more of a commercial career background, I guess. And it's just monotonous. And I think I like, I like waking up and having an open day to be able to go to the hardware store and buy, buy some timber and come back to the studio and, I don't know, just turn it into something. Mm. It, it's there's think, something nice about it with the being able to research a particular theme or an idea and then just express it and mm. just feel it. I was talking to um, the guest out on the podcast last week, William Fever. He's this art critic. Um, and we were talking about how creating art kind of allows you to cheat death in a way. I mean, you know, hopefully all our work that we make will exist, you know, a thousand years from now and I think part of the fear of death is the idea that life goes on without you and people forget about you and almost the best way you can 
cheat that is to make yourself relevant leave beyond. Some, leave something behind. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I actually hope that the best 1% of my work exists 1,000 years from now. I want there to be a bit of um, backwards curation on on that. Well, I don't know a, if it all has to exist in a thousand years. Do you like Maybe your 1%. work? Do you like your work, Richard? Or do you not like yeah, it? Yeah, I like my work. How yeah. much of it? How much nah, of it? Well, uh, not all of it. And so I have this definitely a weird relationship to it because quite often I am the most excited about it when I'm making it. Mm. And I do get a little blue about it when the show opens, it tends mm. to be. Um, it's a funny role to okay. that one. Yeah. I think there's a, um, I just want to, I made Tom answer first and I just want to answer that question a little bit too. Um, I agree with everything that Tom said and it's a real privilege to be able to make work. Um, but I would say more people than are lucky enough to do it um, have this you know, we, we all have work and leisure um, and that's a sort of structure that we all live within or at least, you know, in in, in Australia here. We live in this kind of capitalist scheme um, and artists are cursed with a third element called practice and it's terrible in the sense that it's really hard to get the balance of life or leisure and work and practice um, all to happen, but, um, yeah, we're sort of, I don't know. It's, it's like, why do you exercise your practice? Why do you make your work? Um, I think it's a way of expressing yourself essentially. Um, I think that after some amount of it, after some, after you've established this sort of sense of what you do, then all of a sudden who you are is kind of what you do. Um, and so it's sort of, pretty hard to escape from that at some point. Um, and so not to sound too dramatic, it's also just like, you know, having a really, 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 really strong hobby. But um, yeah, it's, it's, I guess I'm trying to say something, but I'm also just trying to work out a bunch of ideas um, and I'm trying to reflect on life. Um, and this is the best way so far. And, and my practice definitely extends outside of a kind of visual arts um, notion of practice or in a kind of exhibition practice kind of notion of practice. I think I think of like my work with in education as being a kind of intertwined with my practice. I think it's much bigger than that. And probably my guess is that more and more, Tom, your practice as an artist or a painter uh, is going to get confused with all of those things that you come from, um, all those areas and places that you come from. And it is less of a sort of simple distinction, distinction, work, life and practice. They all kind of interrelate, but, um, yeah, so that's what question was I answering again? Why make art? What do you think motivates creatives to create? Yeah, it's practice. Mm. Yeah. Do you like, um, the majority of your work, Tom? Or is- Most of them. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, there's some pieces that are probably less exciting. And I, I mean, the one that I've, I've made for this show is by far 
my favorite piece that I've ever made. What is it? Could you describe it just for the listeners? Um, so it's sort of a, in some ways, it's a bit of a segue between my architectural painting and some of the new stuff that's focusing around sort of uh, appearance of the self. Um, it's a, I built a, a house facade in the studio and painted um, Unreal across the front of it, which refers to Unreal facades, which um, is basically everything you see on Instagram and social media. And then on the back, the reverse side of it, I've actually hung three works that uh, refer to these, um, I guess, warped perspectives that people are seeing and basing their their appearance on. And that's more the direction you're beginning to head in now? Um, de- definitely some of it, yeah. yeah. So appear- appearance of the self, I guess, is an approval, mm-hmm. self-approval, social approval, all that sort of stuff tied in together. Do you guys find when, I mean, the obviously the longer and longer you do art, hopefully the better and better you get at it. And does it almost, I mean, I get, the better I get at painting, the more I enjoy it because you're happier and happier with the product that you're producing. And so you're much more motivated and excited to get into the studio and do it. Mm-hmm. Is it the same for both of you? Oh, 100%. Mm. Yeah. But it's those it's those early days as an artist that are the, oh, it's the dark ones when you're not even sure if you're going to be able to do a semi-average painting or picture. Yeah. But Yeah, it's nice when you kind of, you have a, a bit of confidence in some of the processes that you're undertaking and you've been through it, you know, 10 or 15 times before. And so you get a kind of fluency with the process and there is like um, a less friction between the things that you think of and what you want to make, uh, what you end up making. Um, And although, you know, I think it's, it's still so easy to be surprised and maybe easy to get complacent as well. Um, but the, yeah, it's nice when you've got all of all systems go and yeah, you've got those sort of processes all in place and then you can start really kind of kind of exercising the language of your practice. And I imagine it's like akin to, I don't know, becoming comfortable in a piece of writing software and getting the right kind of mix of, of, um, you know, sunlight and coffee or whatever in your in your studio and getting the right clicky keyboard going and all of that sort of stuff, you need to be a writer. I kind of imagine that that the sort of familiarity with process is is the sort of same thing. Um, it, it allows you to kind of communicate more easily, you know. I mostly You're, spend, I, I, yeah. You always become more um, fluent in your aesthetic language, the better and better you get at it. Mm-hmm. And so you're able to express yeah. yourself better and better. Yeah. 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 Oh, perfect. Was well, there anything else you want to say? I think um, just with some of my new work, I think um, in in looking at how people curate their their feeds and um, presenting their, online, their, their persona in the online realm, I think I've learned myself to be less... Um, worried about what other people think. It's something I've I've battled with um, since high school, and in doing that, I've kind of let that go quite a bit. Um, and I'm making more work for myself, which I think has been quite freeing. And I think that's really elevated um, where my work's headed. When did that start for you? That uh, the that that lack of self consciousness with the work has that been since you've been producing work since 2018. Oh no, I've I've I'm petrified about showing work all the time, mm. and probably um, 
through a through a psilocybin experience I had was it it just became very apparent to me that worrying about what other people think of my work is pointless. It's I need to be making work for myself. Worse than that, it's detrimental. Yeah, it mm. is. And I've I've tried as hard as I can to just push that aside and it still sort of sits in the back of my mind, but I'm definitely a lot more aware of it. And I find that the work that I'm doing now is for me rather than trying to please other people. Mm. And I think it's going to become a lot more authentic and I'm really excited to to try and show some of the new work that I've been mm. working on. Definitely excited to see it as well. Anything else from you, Richard? I can't believe we just started talking about Tom's psychedelic experience right at the end of the podcast. I know we could do another hour. <laughs> I know we could, I want, I really want to do the podcast about that. Um, we'll do part two uh, in a couple of months. Yeah, we'll do part two. I think, I think I've, I've said my part. Um, uh, I don't have much more to add. I'm excited about the show next week. Uh, are you coming down for it, Richard? Nope. Are you not going to be there? Nope. Are we still locked going? down? Are we, are we ending this now? Or is- uh, yeah, we can wrap it up now. Oh, I think we, we should talk about some of the artists that are going to be there. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Who yeah, else? can we talk about the artists? The who, are, yeah. who are some I, of I the... Need, um... need, well, we've got um, Richard Blackwell, obviously. And Tom Yeah, Bear. so can I talk and very Julius briefly? Gilby. I want to say one quick thing there. Me and and um, what, what I'm showing at the at Spectrum is two, two works, and one is a kind of part of an ongoing collaboration between me and Nellie Peoples, um, uh, an artist and silversmith originally from Canberra who's based in Brisbane. And so um, it's one of, um, uh, I've got some cyanotypes and she's got these beautiful welded, um, like laser welded sculptural objects. Um, And it's a kind of pretty open um, collaboration right now. Um, But in November we'll be doing um, some demonstrations of some of these processes. And over the next two years, I think our collaboration will kind of hopefully keep popping up in opportunities like this. Yeah. When you when you say demonstrations, you mean you'll just have almost like a workshop set up where people can see how you produce the work? Yeah, I'm going to be producing, uh, doing a, a workshop for Design Canberra in November out of the studio in Canberra. And so um, we'll be showing a, like a, a another progress showing kind of similar to what we're doing for Spectrum um, as well as a, uh, I think Nelly's going to demonstrate the laser welding technique that she's been developing and pulling wire and I'll be demonstrating cyanotype. Um, and yeah. And so that's just, that's the next thing we've got going on. Um, but hopefully over the next couple of years, we'll just kind of keep popping up in these places, doing these ex- experiments. It's been awesome. Um that's what this is so good about shows like this. It's like a little deadline mm. um, in between like a longer process. And I think maybe that's something that thought forms could continue to facilitate. Mm. Um, anyway, sorry, just jumped in there. How, how have you curated the exhibition? Um, so originally all I wanted to do was just have a show with a bunch of friends. That was, that was the, the crux of the idea. Mm. Um, just working through fashion and, through the interiors thing, meeting all the artists and the creatives and and then obviously being an artist for the last three years, um, I've met some pretty cool people. Who are they? Um, you. Um, Cheers, mate. Uh, obviously, Richard, I've uh, met Dion Horseman's up in Sydney. What's Dion doing for the exhibition? Um, he's, he's got two me, pieces, I think. He's got some crazy drop shadow one. Have you seen that? I, I Yeah, I saw a corner of it today. Um, I, 
Is it? A, it's a new yeah. type of work. It's beautiful. Uh, it's yeah. It's a new. It's a new type of work. It's probably it protrudes from the wall. I think more than most of the works that Dion's made before, and it's gold plated. Mm. Tasty. Tries. And he's also doing a yeah. um a vertical freestanding piece, right. which I'm really pumped to see. I, I really like his freestanding. Yeah, it's very work. exciting work. Um, and then through an art dealer I'm friends with, I've got a couple of big Adam Cullen pieces. Uh, Kane Alexander, who's a I used to study fashion with, he's a photographer who's got some beautiful works going in and some um He's a great photographer. Really Kane's interesting uh, conceptual um I guess like prism disco balls, I'll call them. I, he'll have to explain it, but they're really cool. Um, Fabrizio Biviano, who's a painter from Melbourne who I met up in or through Sydney Contemporary a couple of years ago and we've sort of connected and met up every now and then. Um, my wife, Nikki's putting in a few photography prints from her print studio. What kind of uh, stuff does Nikki do? Um, so she uses a lot of the photography that I have taken through our trips, which are... Um, I guess not suitable for painting reference, but the photography itself is too good to waste. So um, through COVID, she developed a, a website that basically sells high, high quality fine art printing on really good quality paper. And and if the listeners want to get some or buy some of that work, what's the website called? Good plug. Um, it's no worries, uh, Giclay Studios. G I C double C I G I C L double A Studios. Um, and then Carl Gordon, who's one of Melbourne's um, probably busiest neon makers. He does a lot of my neon work for me. Um, so he's done some really abstract sort of almost retro uh, mechanical sort of pieces, um, which are really interesting. Tom Gerard, who I used to share a studio with, he's quite a well-known street artist. Um, so we've got some of his, one of his pieces that he had for his recent exhibition, um, which... I'm I'm fortunate enough didn't sell, but it's probably one of my favorite pieces he's painted. So I was lucky enough to snag that for the show. He's, he's very prolific, Tom Gerard. His um, works all over Melbourne. And then obviously Nelly Peoples we spoke about. Andre Davidoff, who's a ceramicist, um, who is from oh he's moved up into New South Wales somewhere. Uh, to Jindabyne. And he's working up there. He's building a, a gallery and studio space up there for his ceramic work. And he does some really amazing stuff. Um, we also, we got Jack Flash, who's a, an old graffiti friend who started doing neon, I don't know, three, four, five years ago. Um, and he's got some pretty cool little pieces in there as well. His name's actually Jack Flash. No, his name's just Jack. But, but his, nice. his um, artist name is Jack Flash, which I think is a cool name. Oh, Mark yeah. Chu who I connected with earlier in the year and we've just become really good art friends and talk about art and he presses my buttons and makes me think about shit that I'd never really thought about. So he's probably actually played quite a pivotal, um, pivotal, I don't know, position in, in me reconceptualizing my work and thinking about my work from a different point of view. So thought it was important to include him. Um, yourself and then another boy or guy called Paul Spirelli who I met at um, both XVCA students and I met him at a at a gallery in um, at Marfa Gallery I went there for an exhibition and he tried to sell me some work for his mate who was showing there and I was just I don't know got him down to the studio and had a chat with him and got him to put a piece in his 
pretty cool. Um, and then my mate Pat, who I had a fashion label with after fashion school, he started a, a planter company doing interior, I think they're stainless steel or just steel, um, interior high-end um, like architectural styled pot plants. And he's done a really conceptual piece, which is quite cool. And then his um, partner, or uh, Lali, who's a pretty well-known painter, she's doing some some work which I think's um, abstract. Sweet. So it's a pretty big lineup, and I'll just um, quickly run through the sponsors because it go for a time. They're definitely giving us a, a pretty good deal. We've got heaps normal non-alcoholic beers, which as a a sober person for the whole year, I can definitely attest to them. They are unbelievable. Are you still sober? You've been sober delicious. Years. They are, mate. They are. Um, have you had one? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. We uh, we want to do all the um, oh all yeah. The you text me about it. Yeah. I'll hook you up. Yeah. I'll, I'll you got to give me a name with those guys. Yeah, yeah. I'll so wait, you've yeah. been sober all year. Yeah. Will you be drinking on Thursday night? No. Jeez. Grow up, Tom. It's yeah. the, trying to be someone you're these not. These Gen Zs, they don't like drinking. They don't uh, like drinking alcohol. It's good. In all, in all honesty, being sober has has been the best thing for my practice this year. Yeah. Yeah. I've. I've been talking to a good friend of mine, Trent Knox from the 440 in Sydney and just downloading on a few emotional problems that I've not been having, but just like been experiencing throughout the year. And I think not having something that, that mutes or can numb emotional experience you're going through at the end of a week or at the end of a hard day and having to actually sit with yourself and your thoughts has been Incredible. You get a lot more reading done when you're sober as well, I reckon. That too. A lot more energy for it. Yeah, but you have to you have to go you have to go more internal. You have to deal with shit. And mm. I've I've think that's been reflected in the work that I'm starting to conjure up and produce. Mm. Um so anyway, heaps normal beer, get around it. And then I've got the full fat beer from uh Atomic. So they'll be they'll be there. That's good beer too. Yeah, they're they're really generous, those guys. They are good with the plugs, Richard. They always um they always throw down quite a few cases for the shows. So thanks to them. Uh, and then we've got Goldie Boy, who's gonna be doing a good mate of mine, he's starting up a online burger box business and you can order Wagyu cheeseburgers to your house and cook them yourself. And they are legit the best cheeseburgers I've ever had in my life. I'm actually um pescatarian, almost vegetarian, but I will turn for a Goldie Boy burger. That's how good they are. Flexi- Flexitarian, we call that. Yeah. So it's once so a year whenever I have coming. a show. <laughs> yeah. I'll I'll FaceTime you when I have one. He's giving away. Oh, two I can of- order one. Does, does, yeah. he send, does he send them to Sydney yet? Yeah. I he can order be. one. He'll be sending them straight yeah. wide. They're um so he's going to be doing 200 free Wagyu burgers Fresh. until till sold out. Uh, and then we've got Grain Shaker with some um ready to drink. Mixed vodka drinks. They were pretty generous. It gave us heaps of slabs. And then Two Wrongs uh, collaborating with Burn City Rum and they're bringing down a, um, I don't know if it's one or two bartenders to make cocktails, dark and stormies on the night. Oh, you're very good with the admin. Yeah. No, it's the support for the show has been incredible. And I think that and then all the artists getting excited about it and people talking about it and then obviously with Claire getting behind it and it's just, it's really cool. Yeah. To big say. Thank you to Claire at Flinders Lane yeah, Gallery. Massive. Thank you. It's, um, it's, it's just really cool to be able to do a show with a lot of support from a lot of people and everyone sort of behind it and to be able to show work with a whole bunch of friends in the same room 
and not really have to worry about selling work specifically just sort of takes the pressure off and it's just such a cool thing to be able to do. Just really looking forward to yeah, getting and run that. When you get a sort of chance to, it, in a way, the sort of relatively short build-up to the show, like, you know, comparing it to a, an exhibition that you've booked in a year in advance or something like that, the short build-up um, and in some ways the way, uh, at least here in Sydney, COVID has intervened and, um, you know, put some pressures on as well has been a really like interesting and fertile zone for um, making work. And so I'm really pumped on the work that I made for the show. And, and I think um, from what I've seen of it so far, it's um, really worth checking out. And Tom has done an amazing job of the space too. So it'll be a good way to say goodbye to the old studio. It'll be a sad day saying goodbye. Sad day with lots of good way. burgers. But yeah, it, it's the space is really transformed. Why should you say like it's all empty, floors are redone. You got it's rid all, of the spray booth at the back? Oh yeah, it's gone. Yeah. It's all white, crisp, black floors. Sweet. It's, it's going to hum. It's good. Yeah. And uh, what are the dates for the exhibition as well? Uh, dates. So it's going to open on Thursday night, Thursday the 8th. Um, I'm just going to throw caution to the wind and go 5 to 9 rather than the 6 to 8 slot that most galleries do. Mm-hmm. Might as well get people in there, get them have a look at it. Um, and then the show is going to run from the 8th to the Sunday, which is the 11th. And then if anyone misses it and wants to see it, I'll be at the other studio renovating, but can duck back by appointment to open up and show people. So that'll be on for the next this, the week after, which I think finishes on the 16th. Perfect. All right. I think uh, on that we can wrap this up. Rich, cheers for uh, yeah, it was fun. Wide Zoom. Does and, that uh, was that your yeah. first three-way? First three-way, mate. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Mm. Your experience. Well, the first one's always memorable. Oh, mate. <laughs> and uh, thanks, Tom, for coming by. So, uh, Absolute pleasure. Catch you later, fellas. See you at the show. Cool. Yeah. Bye. Cheers, guys. Talk soon.